Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credits for many of the TMA Practice Well podcast episodes? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash CME. T-O-G-O, to register for your episode and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and standards at the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products devices, or services may be discussed in the context at the CME activity. The planners and speakers for this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this program should not be used or referred to as primary legal sources and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney nor should the information and opinions presented as part of this program be construed as establishing medical standards of care for the purposes of litigation, including expert testimony. The standard of care is dependent upon the particular facts and circumstances of each individual case, and no generalization can be made that would apply in all cases. Hi, I'm Cheryl Kreviak. I manage the TMA Education Center and produce the TMA Practice Well podcast. And this is Ask the Expert, where you send in your questions and TMA expert staff and guests provide answers. This episode is moderated by Sylvia Salazar, AVP of Membership and Leadership Development. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, This is Ask the Expert. It's a virtual series to bring members direct access to professional experts who can answer questions on legal, practice management, advocacy, and regulatory topics. Today's Ask the Expert is operational cost management. This session will discuss practical tips for managing and improving your practice's operational costs. So our speakers for today are Heather Betridge, Associate Vice President, TMA Practice Management Services, Cara Benson, Manager, TMA Practice Management and Reimbursement Services, Terry Diebler, TMA Practice Management Consultant, and Shannon Vogel, Associate Vice President, TMA Health Information Technology. So I'm going to start, um, let's start with uh, Terry Diebler. And Terry, what are you hearing in the, in the field now? Are there questions that you're getting regarding um, operational cost management? Absolutely. Um, and They don't want to compromise great patient quality care, but they have to cut costs to make ends meet, especially since the pandemic. So the question is, how do we cut without sacrificing quality care? And there are quite a few things that you can do. So sit down at the end of a month and review your GL with whoever your manager is or your bookkeeping 
bookkeeper and see if you have any redundancy in there or any waste, any subscriptions that you don't need. Some of the services could be included in one service that you already have and you're paying for it in another. And then of course, rewarding employees and paying employees is a big part of your costs. So if you are doing small gestures throughout the year um, and rewarding in small ways, gift cards, attaboys, uh, thank yous, parking spots, you know, premiums, that sort of thing, um, you're less likely to have to give a great big uh, reward in terms of a big raise at the end of the year. And the employees love the recognition throughout the year. And then they're more loyal to you and less likely to go somewhere else because they already feel valued where they are. And then hire the right people. The right people are expensive, but the right people are probably better than two mediocre um, staff members. So you're cutting your overhead costs automatically there. You can join group purchasing organizations to get better leverage and better pricing for supplies and then automate as much as you can in your practice. Um, obviously, we don't want to put people out of work, but automation can take the place of one or two full-time employees. If you have everything in place that can automate the process through the billing, the revenue cycle, and anything um, that improves efficiency. Wonderful. Thank you, Terry. So, um, Heather, what else can we do other than just cut costs to become more profitable? What are things outside of the box? Um, one of the first things that um, you can do is optimize the things that you already have. Like, I can't tell you the number of times that we go into practices and just the patient portal is not activated. The patient portal itself, it'll help reduce, say, the, the phone time that staff are spending on routine tasks. And the cost of hiring additional staff can be mitigated through the automation of portals. You may not need to hire um, that person that you think you do to schedule appointments because that can be done through, through the patient portal by the patient. So things like that will ultimately decrease staff workload, but also activate various modules like the billing and coding modules that may already be in your EHR. One of the biggest things that um, we see is incorrect billing and coding at various stages throughout the billing process. And to help this or help avoid it, a lot of systems offer automated functions like real-time insurance coverage verification and eligibility. And if your system doesn't already have that functionality, there are standalone products that might be able to integrate with what you do have. And that leads um, directly into another option, which may seem counterintuitive by spending money, but just upgrading your existing technology all around. You know, today's EHRs not only make operations more efficient, but they, they also, as I've mentioned, sometimes cut the need to hire more staff, thus saving money. And with the number of options out there right now, you know, do your research and seek out one that, that offers the, the features that um, you're looking for or that would most help you. 
You can also look at your space. You can negotiate lease terms, and you can also rethink any available space that you already have. You know, maybe there's an um, exam room that just doesn't use get used that, that often, or you use it only for overflow. You know, and that could be leased out to, say, a specialist that comes to the area one or two days a week. Um, or you might have a conference room that you use just that at one time a month for monthly staff meetings, maybe rent that out to other uh, businesses in your building that don't have that space available. And then the little things, you know, cut down on office supplies or things that aren't necessarily high dollar itself. But when you add them all together, you know, things like brand name coffee, you know, the specialty coffee pods in the break room subscriptions to the higher end magazines for the reception area, things like that. And keep in mind that, you know, before implementation or, or your go live date with, with these changes, make sure to train and get the buy-in from your staff. You know, whatever it is that's required for a smooth transition, because the impact on your patients is going to be softened by that, or at least not as obvious. And if patients ask you about it, it's okay to be honest. You know, times are tough, and this is going to help us save on expenses and keep our doors open. Patients are going to understand. They don't want to see anyone struggle. Thank you, Heather. Those are all great practical tips. Thank you so much. I think a lot of those we wouldn't even think about, um, you know, it doesn't come naturally to think that way. So thank you for that. Sure. So, Cara. We've been hearing a lot about virtual credit card payments. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So um, this has actually been an issue for quite some time. In 2014, it became a requirement that health plans are to allow practices to use EFT. Virtual credit card payments, unfortunately, have not gone away. And we have even recently seen an uptick in them. So what's happening is the virtual credit card payment, it's a pretty big cost um, to process one of them, um, just one payment. I've seen upward of 5% versus EFT. If they're using standard transactions, there shouldn't be a cost associated with that. So by requesting that the health plan send EFT instead of virtual credit card payments, that could save quite a bit. We have heard from practices that have had trouble with health plans um, allowing the EFT. There are plans out there that are not health plans. They refer to as ministry plans. They are not a HIPAA entity, and therefore the virtual credit card payments rule would not apply to them. So some of the confusion is what falls under the HIPAA and what doesn't. Um, and that's something we can certainly assist with. So that's one thing to look for is if they are getting pushback on getting EFT, what kind of plan is it? The other thing is to make sure to check the bank. It may not be a fee necessarily that's coming from the health plan, but it may be a fee on the bank. So there still may be some associated with it, but the cents on the dollar versus thousands, what the virtual credit card payments could be costing practices can make a big difference. Thank you for that. So there is a question. Um, so Dr. Rao is asking, do you have any suggestions regarding group purchasing organizations that we can join to get discounts? 
I can I can start this one off. Um, so for those who aren't familiar, GPOs are group purchasing organizations that allow particularly small practices to leverage you know, the, the advantages of large scale purchasing entities. And they can be helpful with both your, your standard disposables and supplies, but also for larger items like equipment and furniture or even service agreements for like background checks. If you're not familiar with GPOs that are available, um, a couple of things that you can try is contacting your local hospital for any GPOs that you might be able to join, especially if you have privileges there. Oftentimes, specialty societies may have a formal program in place. There's um, two specific GPOs that, that I'm familiar with that I've seen in practices, and one's called Connect, C-N-E-C-T, and um, Group Source. And they offer very similar options. They differ in the sense of the vendors that they partner with. So for example, Connect contracts with McKesson and GroupSorf contracts with both uh, McKesson and Henry Shine. So there's going to be different options and different vendors. So while we're talking about um, reducing supply costs, are there any other things that you would suggest, Heather? Um, you know, cutting costs, you know, one of the things that you can do just as, as a starting place is um, get a hold of your specialty benchmarks. And I'll uh, share the first, say the top three that, that I would recommend looking at. First would be your overhead as a percentage of revenue. Um, we know that on average expenses account for about... 60% of a practice's res revenue. Now, that does vary per specialty, but whatever your percentage is, you should strive to keep your overhead ratio lower than that. So if your percentage is higher, it should tell you that you should dig a little deeper into the details, meaning are you higher across the board or is it one particular expense category um, that you might need to to dig deeper in. The next benchmark I would recommend is looking at your staff to physician or provider ratio. You know, staff salaries and benefits typically represent the largest expense category for, for a practice, for any practice. And usually that accounts for about 25% of total revenue. And the average number of uh, full-time equivalent, you know, support staff members is usually three to four um, FTEs per physician. Again, that's going to depend on specialty. But when you look at that, I caution you to not just go in and, you know, start making terminations or rearranging staff into different areas. Look at the technology that you have in place, your, um, your location, whether or not you have mid-levels on staff. If you outsource any functions, that's going to affect your ratio as well. And the last is your financial benchmarks to gauge, you know, efficiencies throughout your revenue cycle. So look further than, you know, your, your standard benchmarks of your charges, collections, your collection ratios, which, which are important, but also look at um, things like your aged accounts receivable buckets, the number of days in AR, um, if you have a charge entry lag time, all of those things can also significantly impact your bottom line and then improve cash flow. 
Thank you, Heather. Uh, Cara, I didn't I didn't mean to cut you off earlier. Were you going to, to I was, add something Yeah, else? I was going to say something, um, but I want to piggyback off of what Heather just said. It's important also to make sure that you watch how many times you file a claim, because every time you file, a, you're getting charged. So it's very important that you don't just resend it without understanding first why it's not been paid, because there may be something bigger going on. So make sure you do some research on the claim first before you send it. What I was going to say earlier was if you're looking for bigger equipment and you want to add something, you might look and see if there are any practices around you or same you know, specialty that are selling their practice that are closing and they are trying to get rid of their equipment, you may be able to find it cheaper from another physician versus buying it brand new or from another source. And then if you're not able to cut costs, look for ways to add ancillary services or additional revenue streams. I worked with a physician who was very specialized. Uh, she was working with adolescents gynecology. And she was making recommendation for acne. And I sort of put a bug in her ear and said, well, if it's going to be something you're going to recommend, maybe you're going to want to look into invest, investing your time and energy in doing your due diligence about the products that are out there and how effective they are. And maybe that's a revenue stream you could bring in house because they're going to buy it somewhere. So might as well buy it from you. And you, if you feel like you can stand behind the product, there's a revenue stream for you there. So there are other specialties or by adding physician extenders. So maybe you're in the OR two days a week, but you want to be still be generating um, revenue within your practice. Bringing on an extender might be able to fit that bill. And so you're paying rent regardless for that space. Someone's generating revenue in your place. So look for ways not only to cut costs, but to bring in ancillary services and additional revenue streams. That's great advice. Thank you for that. There is another question. Dr. Rao is asking, like many practices, we've seen a huge increase in prepayment and postpayment audits. Any advice on how to minimize the staff time spent on these? I can take that one. Dr. Rao, that is a great question. One that we get often because a lot of the time what's involved in these is a very large quantity of claims that and medical records that have been requested. Um, so the first thing I would say is, is what the health plan is asking for, does it make sense? Are they asking for just 10 or are they asking for 200? So that would be the first thing. And if it is a ridiculous amount, I would reach out to them and ask for them to cut down that amount based on, you know, it's an administrative burden. And as always, if you are having trouble with communication, we are always happy to assist with that. The other thing is it's really important to understand why there's prepayment and postpayment audit. Because if you can tackle that first, you know, trying to resolve that, you know, the underlying issue of why you were getting prepayment and postpayment audits, that alone will cut it out because that's going to be your, your biggest hindrance 
in staff time. And then I also know that some of the uh, carriers will volunteer or let someone come into your office. So it's not your staff yes. time at all. And I would have them sign a disclosure form mm -hmm. or a non-disclosure form if they do come into your practice and pull the records themselves. But it's a way to cut your costs because your employee isn't doing it. One quick um, addition to that is I wouldn't let them have free reign. Make sure that they're that they're limited to a particular set of records that they don't have access to all records and all days of service. That's good feedback. Um, I was going to call on Shannon Vogel. Tell us a little bit about what you're hearing in the field regarding um, upgrading EHRs and vendor alerts to updates and things like that, please. Okay. I, I will say that, um, you know, I recently did hear from a practice who was being charged quite a bit to upgrade his EHR. And the vendor was saying it was because um, of HIPAA that they would no longer guarantee that it would be HIPAA compliant because it was so out of date. And I asked this physician, you know, if he had been, you know, maintaining regular updates and he said, no, it'd probably been five years since he had updated. And, and I told him that really, you know, from a, a, a security perspective, you should keep up with updates. And I would encourage all of you to do that because a lot of times the technical updates might close gaps or loops where there may be malware or cybersecurity issues based on known attacks. So if you think that upgrading your EHR is expensive, having a hacking incident is really expensive. So just trying to save you some money from having hackers by closing up those loopholes and staying on top of the upgrades. Not all vendors charge for upgrades. I know some EHR vendors will have all of their customers on what is referred to as the same instance of the EHR. So any practice that you go into that runs that EHR, it's going to look the same. And that vendor may do very incremental updates, you know, whether it's nightly, weekly, and you may not even realize that these, of course, would be web-based EHRs. And you may not even realize there are updates or you may see very minor changes because it is done so incrementally, which I think is kind of nice. Um, just as you might see minor changes when you, you know, go on your bank's website or your, you know, credit card website or travel. Um, so those changes sometimes are just very slight. I realize that upgrades can also be a hassle because depending on how major they are, the burden is back on you to spend staff time. Dr. Rao, as you mentioned, you know, staff time is expensive to ensure that everything is working well and that the data is, um, you know, the quality of the data is preserved and that you can access the information you need. And I would also caution you to be aware of customizing your EHR while I know that it might be nice to have certain bells and whistles that you don't normally have, or maybe there are certain reports you want to run, when you do customize, especially if the customizations are extensive, um, just know that when that vendor has an upgrade, those links or those customizations may not work as initially intended, and you have to spend time rebuilding those. So I would caution you to use the EHR as it is um, delivered to you, and again, customize only if very necessary and do stay on top of your updates. Thank you, Shannon. So what about when you're needing to outsource IT? Uh, what can folks expect to pay for that technical expertise? Yeah, you know, the IT support, and, and this is another recent question that I've had is, you know, how do you know how much to pay? And the IT support is priced all over the board. It might be based on, you know, specific needs that you have, 
or on per unit. So for example, all of your desktop uh, computers, your servers, even your printers. And it may also be based on, you know, a subscription type model where you, you know, pay so much a month for the service. So take a look at, at what expertise you have in-house. You might have expertise already of folks that can um, handle certain things technically and then make a list of where you need help and then shop vendors based on that. And as you start to shop around, you'll get a sense of what they're charging, how they're charging, and you can determine you know, how to budget based on the needs of your practice. I would also say be very wary of signing any long-term contract with an IT outsourced vendor. You want to be nimble and make sure that they provide the service that you do need, that they are responsive, because there are times where it's somewhat of an emergency. I mean, if your EHR is down and it's your fault, it's not because somebody you know, was digging and sliced the internet line outside. It's because of something going on in your practice. You need help immediately. So how responsive are they? Those are some of the things that you want to look for as you start to use a service. And then also, do they try to price low to get your business? And then, oh, next month, we're going to have a price increase. So again, if you can um, be nimble and make sure that it's a good fit before signing um, any sort of long-term contract. And Heather, on this, I want to just ask you a question. Um, I know that when we talked about this before, you talked about MGMA having benchmarks around what a practice can spend on IT. And it was around, you know, less than 2% of total revenue. Any more to add to that as far as how they can expect to price that out? Um, not for what, how to approach pricing itself, but, you know, the benchmarks are going to include more than just, um, just the technology itself. It's going to take, you know, the cost of upgrades, the cost of servicing. So, um, it doesn't break it down to the line item like that, It, but it gives you um, kind of the, the standard of you should be spending about this much. If you're over, then it's time to take a closer look. Good advice. Thank you. So I have one last question, and that is any advice on keeping credit card processing fees to a minimum? Our vendor has been steadily adding new fees and upping existing ones. So the first thing I would say is to negotiate. A lot of the times they will negotiate um, the fees, the transaction fees, the administrative fees. So that would be the first step. Also, I would um, recommend looking, you don't have to go through a third-party vendor for your credit card processing. A lot of times, if you have an established business account you know, with, with your bank, that relationship, oftentimes they have their own merchant services. They won't charge you for the hardware um, so reaching out to your bank because they want they don't want just part of your business. They want all of your business. And so oftentimes we find that your business banking relationships are going to be a good route to try. Thank you for that. So we're actually at the end of our time for today. So I want to thank all of you for joining us for this Ask the Expert program. We hope you take away practical tips you can start using today. Check the episode description for the links to claim CME and the full list of Ask the Expert episodes. Remember to like and follow the TMA Practice Well podcast so you get every episode. Until next time, stay well.
TMA has a long, proud history of promoting patient rights, advocating for physicians, and providing real solutions for your practice. We can accomplish so much when we unite in one voice. Call the TMA Knowledge Center at 1-800-880-7955 or visit TexMed.org to find out how you can join or renew your membership today.